He was uh, led by the Spirit out into the wilderness for 40 days. He comes back, and uh, John the Baptist identifies him as the Lamb of God. Some of uh, John's disciples leave John <clears throat> and follow Jesus. And uh, we have a, a week recorded here, four days in succession. And then on the third day, which would be the seventh day of the week, uh, of the week in question, then uh, we come to John chapter 2. Now on the third day, and this would, be, <clears throat> this would be the third day after the last day that we had when he decides to leave for Galilee. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. I've mentioned to you before that you can read all four Gospels in about 10 hours. Uh, but that, uh, that means that you're going to read everything that's in each of the four Gospels. The four Gospels contain complementary accounts of various things that Jesus did and that Jesus said. So, for example, all four Gospels record something about the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, but from one, we learn that there was a lot of grass in that place, we learn from another that there were Jesus had the people sit down in groups of 50 or 100. From one, we learn that there was a small boy who had five small barley loaves and two small fish. But not, not one of the accounts contains every single detail that we get by collating what we have. So we, if we put all four accounts together, then you come up with... Uh, with the story, with the various details that are included by the respective evangelists. If you read all four accounts of the feeding of the 5,000, let's just say that it would take you 10 minutes to read, to read all four. But if you read only a collation, of a, a compilation of all the details that were in all four, it would probably take you about half that time. 
Now, I haven't put this to the test, but I think that if the whole life of Christ were collated, you could probably read the entire thing in four or five hours. And uh, I think that maybe something like that recently was done by John MacArthur's ministry. I, I think, Janice, that could be what you ordered when you thought you were getting a harmony. And uh, I'd like, I would like to see that. I know Dallas has one, and uh, I, I, I think I'll get one. I think it would be a very interesting thing to read, just a collation of the life and teachings of Christ. But I suppose that it would probably take about half the time that it would take you if you read all four Gospels. It's pretty remarkable that such an important man with such important things to say, uh, three and a half years of his ministry, I mean, there's, that's over a thousand days, are summarized in a document that you could probably read in five hours, but certainly no more than ten hours. It's really remarkable. And so you know that uh, when, when the Holy Spirit was inspiring the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when he was inspiring them to write that he, he revealed to them the necessity of being selective. Someone like John, who had been with him from the beginning, John probably was one of the two disciples who had heard what John the Baptist had said, look, the Lamb of God, and he goes and follows Jesus. And uh, he, John was probably one of those two. We know that Andrew was the other one because Andrew found Simon, his brother, and, and brought him to Jesus. But it was probably John. And uh, so what we have here in, in John chapter 2 may very well be an eyewitness account. John was there. He sees that the water jars are filled with water all the way to the brim. Or it could be, if John wasn't there, that he had an opportunity to talk to Mary about these things later on. Because you remember, on the cross, Jesus entrusted the keeping of Mary to John, the fellow who, who wrote this book. And uh, so John took her into his home, and she became part of John's household. So I'm sure that they had many, many conversations about what had happened during, during the, the life of Jesus, uh, during those years about which we know nothing. From age 12 to age 30, we know nothing about Jesus. At the conclusion of this book, or near the conclusion, John says something like this, uh, if everything that Jesus said and did were written down, the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And so John had an overflowing abundance. He felt like he himself could write a, a library about Jesus that the world could not contain. And so I mention all that to help us to appreciate the preciousness and the significance of the few things that we do have. So out of all this massive material, the Holy Spirit leads John, and only John, to write about this first miracle, the turning of the water into wine. Neither Matthew, nor Mark, nor Luke have this, this first miracle that is recorded. And so I think, applying my theory, that this is a highly significant miracle. Now, I think that it, the fact that it is, is significant is even, even further strengthened by the fact that it is identified as a sign. He says this the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. 
Unless you've read the Bible very carefully, you probably have not noticed that there are four different words that are used to describe the miracles that Jesus did. Sometimes they're just called works. Sometimes they're called the powers, dunamis. Sometimes they're called wonders. And then the fourth word is signs. Now, I don't think that those words... uh, Well, let me put it this way. I think that there's some blurring of the lines between the various words that you can't always make a huge deal out of the fact that the word powers is used instead of works or that the word signs is used instead of one of the other other four words. But I do think that uh, generally when something is identified as a sign, we ought at least to consider... Does this signify, I mean, signify something? Of course, I mispronounced it on purpose because signify does start with the word sign, S-I-G-N, signify. So as some, something has significance if it is a sign that points to something else. Now, when you were in a little, little kid Sunday school, I hope that you learned that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now, similar to that, a sign is a physical act that has spiritual significance. It's a, it's a, it is a physical act, in this case, turning the water into wine, but it's a sign. It is saying something spiritually about Jesus and about his kingdom. And we shouldn't be surprised if we don't have any particular aspect of the ministry of Jesus just hammered over and over again. Because after all, we end up with a a small book that you can read in five to ten hours. And so the Holy Spirit has to be very selective in what he chooses about the life of Christ. And I think that uh, what we have here is a an important sign miracle that signifies that Jesus' ministry was a ministry that was filled with joy. And honestly, you don't get that in a whole lot of places. So he's described in the Old Testament as being a man of sorrows and who is acquainted with grief. Much of uh, of what we read about him in the Gospels is brought to light when he's in conflict with people who are uh, misunderstanding him and falsely accusing him. That's not the context where you put a big smile on your face and, and let out a big belly laugh. You know, so the, the way that much of the teaching of Jesus is presented is presented in circumstances where you don't expect to hear laughter. And Nowhere in the Bible do we read that Jesus laughed. But I think that this passage of Scripture and one other that I'm going to show to you indicate that we ought to think of Jesus as being a very joyful man and, and we ought to consider participation in the, the, the reign of Jesus, His being the King over us, is that He is calling us into a kingdom that is characterized by joy. Now, you've heard me use this illustration before, and if you stick around for a few years, you'll hear me, you'll, you will hear me tell all my stories again. 
You see, the congregation is composed right now of, of two big groups. There are younger people who have come in the last few years, and there are older people who can't remember what happened last week. So, you see, that way I can tell the same stories again and again, and it's new to the new people, and the old people don't remember. (laughs) So I probably should just stop saying I've told you this story before. But I've actually mentioned this lately. There are some branches of Christianity who seem to indicate that the, the highest point of spirituality is when you are sad all the time and that you live in a state of brokenness, that you're just always grieved about your sin and, <clears throat> and sad most of the time and that you can tell that someone is a holy person because they rarely laugh and they don't enjoy things. That is a false view of Christianity. There is a time for brokenness. We'll see this even in this passage of Scripture when we come to ask, what's the significance of the six stone water jars? There is a time for brokenness. There is a time for cleaning up your life. But brokenness is a nurse who works in the office of Dr. Joy. She She takes your vital signs and says, oh, you're in bad shape. You should be sad about this. But Dr. Joy comes in and he tells you, you don't have to stay sad about this. I've got the cure for this. And uh, so Joy uh, joy comes after, uh, but Joy ought to come after the brokenness and the sadness. So I I said that there was one other passage of Scripture that I think emphasizes the the fact that Jesus' uh, ministry was a life uh, filled with joy and gladness, a ministry filled with joy and gladness. And interestingly enough, it also is connected with wine. Look in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 11. I'm not going to read all of Matthew chapter 11, but this is when Jesus is talking to the crowd about John the Baptist. And uh, so once you've found uh, Matthew chapter 11, just, just hold, hold your finger there. I'll get to it in just a second. I think that uh, as Jesus was going about a, a streets of the city one time, doesn't matter what city, because I'm making this story up, he, uh, he saw a group, of, a group of young children who were fussing with each other. And since I'm just making this up, let's just say that there were five or six on one side and five or six on the other side, and they were just chattering like starlings in a tree. They were upset with each other. And Jesus comes along and says, What's going on here? And one group says, Well... We wanted to play funeral, and they didn't want to play funeral. And the group on the other side says, Yeah, we wanted to play wedding, and they didn't want to play wedding. And so we're not going to play with each other. And uh, so Jesus just kind of files that away. I don't know how, I haven't imagined how that story ends. But it does set up what I'm going to read to you here from Matthew chapter 11. Let's just start with verse 11. 
Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. You see that fuss? And and Jesus says, That's the way you people are. You didn't like John the Baptist, and you don't like me. Why didn't you like John the Baptist? Look what it says there in verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. Oh, he's so austere. He's so strict. He's such an ascetic. Living out in the wilderness, eating locusts and wild honey. The guy's a freak. I mean, he he preaches a strong message, and he can talk, but he's a nut. He is a nut. And then... Verse 19, why don't you like me? The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So he says, I, I come and I'm, I'm drinking beverages that could result in intoxication, and so you call me a drunkard. I don't, I, I don't get drunk, but... You say that because I am enjoying the, the finer things of life, because I'm, in, I'm, I'm going to feasts and I'm eating food, I'm not fasting all the time, and I haven't taught my disciples to fast all the time. They'll fast later on, but right now is a time of great joy. And so you look at my ministry and you say, he's a kook. He's, he's a glutton. He eat, he's, he's always going to feasts. And look at him. He drinks wine. Oh, yeah, rumors going around that he, was, uh, really, he really tied one on the other night. And so all these, all these bad rumors going around. But Jesus saying, well, who was right? Was John the Baptist right or am I right? Look at the way he concludes this. He says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds or wisdom is justified by all of her children. One of the parallel says so there are people in the kingdom of God who are called to hard ministries. And they, may, they may fast a lot. They may be in a situation where they don't enjoy uh, some of the, the good things of life. But there are other people who are able to enjoy these things and give glory to God. One ministry seems to be characterized by much sadness and another ministry is characterized by much joy. But who in this illustration had the ministry that was characterized by much joy? It was Jesus. And so he was was falsely accused of being a glutton, which he wasn't, and a drunkard, which he wasn't. But the only reason that any of that has any teeth whatsoever is because he was eating feasts and he was drinking beverages that could result in intoxication. And uh, so back to John chapter 2. I think so... We've just got this, this little snippet into the, into the ministry of Christ where he's not in a big fuss. Well, in, in Matthew 11, he is in a fuss. But in, in John chapter 2, we see Jesus just freely 
enjoying a feast, and, and what he does at that feast is a sign. And I think it's a sign that his ministry is characterized by one of joy. Now let's go back over this passage of Scripture. And in the first paragraph, we see the setup. In the second paragraph, we see the miracle performed. And then finally, there are some uh, words of application, some from the text and some that spring from the text. So let's look at the setup. It probably took Jesus about three days to walk with his disciples from the place where John had identified him as the Lamb of God to Galilee. It was at the very least about 22 miles, uh, which he could easily have covered in, uh, in two days. And then on the third day, he goes to the wedding at Canaan in Galilee. Now, uh, Jesus had been invited there. So, um, and also, Jesus' mother was there. You put those two things together, and it gives you a little space for some speculation. Uh, it's possible that this was one of Jesus' half-sisters who is getting married. It's likely that it was some relative uh, because Mary apparently has authority to tell the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And that wouldn't be the sort of thing that just a common guest would say to the servants who were there to help. So this was, this was probably a, the wedding of someone who was a relative of Jesus, a relative of Mary's, maybe her own daughter, her, her, full, da- her full daughter, because, you know, uh, the Roman Catholics really have no significant basis for assuming the perpetual virginity of Mary, and their basis for trying to do so is wrong as well. That, uh, that Roman Catholic doctrine is that even in marriage, the act of marriage is tainted with sin, inescapably tainted with sin. That's not the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is that the marriage bed is undefiled, and, and an honorable thing. And one of the reasons that God leads people to get married is for meeting, uh, the, meeting the, uh, the situation of satisfying the natural desires that uh, healthy young people have. And that is desires for sexual intimacy. And uh, so uh, there's no need for us to try to uh, shuffle things around and say, well, Jesus had brothers, but they were all children of Joseph by a former marriage. There's just no need for that uh, because uh, there is no need for us to try and, and uh, keep Mary perpetually a virgin. Jesus is called Mary's firstborn, firstborn. So what does that indicate? It indicates that there were others who followed, that Jesus was the first one that was born to her, but there were others. And so... Uh, we, we can speculate about this, and there are some things that we may wish that we had more information about. One of the commentators that I read pointed out that uh, John is a little like Rembrandt. He just has one sentence on it. John, like Rembrandt, uh, knows the importance of shadow. I don't know if you even know who Rembrandt is, but he's one of the famous artists uh, throughout history. And if you look up any of his pictures, one of the things that probably will impress you is how dark they are. But he uses the darkness that uh, he puts into his, his paintings to emphasize something that he wants you to look at. There are other things that are going on. You see them in the background, but they're, are, they're all dark. But the thing that he really wants you to see is in the, bright, in, in the light. And that's the way John does with this. So many things that we don't know about what went on at this wedding. Why did they run out of wine and all of that? 
but the main thing is that uh, all of that is kept in the shadow, and the, and the main thing is brought out that Jesus performs his first miracle here of turning water into wine. And uh, Jesus' mother gives the servants good advice, good advice that we should heed when she tells them, do whatever he tells you to do. And uh, so uh, it's an interesting exchange between Mary and Jesus here. Mary comes to him and says they have no more wine. That would strengthen the theory that this was a, a wedding of someone who was related to Jesus. Otherwise, why is Mary in the position of informing Jesus and assuming, apparently, that he can do something about it. I think that there's more to it than just simply uh, my going to someone at a fellowship and saying, we're running out of chicken. You know, I, I don't expect them to make chicken appear out of nowhere. But apparently there is something like that in Mary's speaking to Jesus. She knows better than anyone who he is and what he is capable of doing. And she hasn't seen him do any of that, as far as we know. She hasn't seen him do any of that. And so she says, uh, this would be a really good time for you to let everyone know that you're the Messiah. And Jesus responds to her in what may sound like a, a, a terse, disrespectful response. He says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, husbands, I recommend that you don't call your wife this. And children, I recommend that you don't refer to your mother this way. She tells you to take out the garbage and you say, Woman, what has that got to do with me? You say, but I'm just imitating Jesus. No. No. Uh, in, in our culture, that is not a respectful address. And so we kind of read our culture into this. It was not disrespectful, but on the other hand, it was not mommy either. So it was, it was kind of a, I'm not being disrespectful to you, mother, but you've got to know that someone else is calling the shots in my life. And uh, thank, I, I'm sure that he said it many times and in many ways, I'm so thankful for the way that you have influenced me and uh, for all that you have been. But there are going to be some things happen that you don't understand and that I am going to have to do in obedience to my father. I think this is one of those cases. But it's not an absolute rebuttal. He is not, don't even talk to me about this. Instead, he does something about it. So I put it together like this, that Jesus is saying, Mom, mother, woman, I know what you're asking me to do. You're wanting me to reveal that I'm the Messiah. It's not time for that. My hour has not yet come. But I can't help you with the wine. And so that's what he does. So there are, nearby there are six stone water jars. And the Bible tells us that these six stone water jars are big they hold from 20 to 30 gallons. So an average size garbage can in a kitchen is about 20 gallons. Uh, if you get into a 30-gallon can and you fill it up with water, not many of you could carry it. So we're talking about, I mean, you know how big a five-gallon bucket is. 
And these would hold four, five, or six of them. So let's just hit the middle and say that they were about 25 gallons each, and there are six of them. So that makes 150 gallons. And these, these, these uh, uh, big water pots are there, and the Bible says that they're for the purpose of ceremonial cleansing. Now, in the New Testament, we read how that the Jews had added a number of laws to the Old Testament, and some of them involved ceremonial cleansing. And this is probably evidence that this was the common custom, and that at this wedding, they had these water pots where people could wash their hands and where people could uh, dip their dishes and wash their dishes. Jesus later says, you know, you, you, you have all of these external rites, R-I-T-E-S. You have all these external rituals for uh, cleansing, but you leave the inside dirty. Clean up what is inside, and then what is outside will be clean for you. But anyway, that's probably why these five water jars were there. And uh, they say they're made of stone. I don't think that means that they mean that they were hollowed out of granite, but the kind of hard pottery it's called stoneware. Sometimes you can even buy stoneware today, and it's not made of literal stone. It just refers to the kind of pottery. So got these uh, six stone water jars that are used for the purpose of ceremonial cleansing. And so that kind of carries with it the idea, I'm dirty, and I need to be cleansed. Even though they probably took a bath before they came to the wedding, they ceremonially want to be saying, I know that I'm dirty and I need to be cleansed. And so Jesus takes these. I don't see why there's... I think there must be something significant to it. Otherwise, I don't see the reason for all the detail. Six stone water jars, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Uh, so I think the significance is that this is a before and after picture. And it will be made clear a little later on in the conclusion of the sermon. Before, you've got these, these cold stone uh, remnants of Judaistic legalism, and Jesus is going to turn it into a really nice party. He's going to turn it into a really nice uh, opportunity for joy. And so uh, Jesus tells the, the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. So there's nothing... Nothing left in the bottom that, you know, maybe it's just going to flavor the wine or something like that. They fill the jars with water all the way to the brim and, you know, 150 gallons, 150 gallons of water. And then he says, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not know where it had come from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew. And so the master of the banquet, who was kind of like a wedding coordinator, so someone who is in charge of making sure that the food is out uh, and so on and that, the, and that the wine doesn't run out, they take some to the master of the banquet. And uh, in, in the Greek, it's an interesting term. It actually is uh, the, the, the king of the three couches. So in some, in a lot of rooms in those days, there would be three couches surrounded a low table. And so the person who's in charge of that room is, uh, we would just say he's the master of the banquet, but the Greek word is actually the, the king of the three couches. 
And uh, so uh, he tastes the water that has now been turned into wine, and there's this look of surprise that comes over his face. And he calls the bridegroom aside, and he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after, after people have had too much to drink, after people have drunk freely. So your, your capacity for appreciating all the, the nuances of, uh, of wine apparently disappear once you have had too much to drink. And, uh, and so the, the, the master of the banquet is surprised. This is unusual. This is not what people usually do. Uh, you've saved the best until now is the way that, that he concludes. And, uh, and so then... So Jesus performs this great miracle, and so what is the application? So I think that there are some that are obviously stated here in the text. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. So that's significant, and it is a sign. It's a sign which I think indicates that he takes something that is common and something that is mundane, and, uh, and he turns it into something that is really exquisitely good. The master of the banquet says, you've saved the best wine till now. I mean, this wasn't, this wasn't Mogan David that, that shows up in these, in these uh, it was, wasn't a cheap wine that shows up in these water, these water pots. This was really, really good, good wine that shows up. And so I think the signification is Jesus is going to take um, the... The stone water pots of legalistic Judaism, he is going to fill them with the joy of his kingdom. He is going to take mundane, common things, common lives, and he's going to turn them into lives that are filled with joy. He is going to make sure that the joy of his kingdom follows the repentance, the cleansing that is represented by the water jars, so repent, and then you move on to joy. And then I think there is this also, when the, when the master of the banquet says, you have saved the best until last, that is a principle in Christ's kingdom. Sometimes our lives on earth are filled with, uh, with sadness and with trials, but there is a, a great reward that is coming. And Jesus saves the best for last. He does that not only with respect to heaven, but he, he also does that with the Christian life that is lived well. You know, the devil has very few happy old people because uh, the things that used to give them joy no longer give them joy in the way that they once did. But uh, on the other hand, if you're walking with the Lord, uh, then ideally, your life becomes more and more joyful as you go on. As the master of the banquet said, everyone brings out the cheap wine first. That's the way of the world. Bring out, bring out the good wine first, I mean, and then saves the cheap wine for later. Jesus, on the other hand, saves the best for last. Of course, this is a sermon just before we take the Lord's Supper. And uh, the elements of the Lord's Supper that were originally used would be, have been unleavened bread and would have been wine. Uh, you know, during, during the year of uh, where, where people lived in, in Palestine, uh, 
the grape harvest would be roughly corresponding to our summer. And then the grape harvest would be over at the beginning of fall, and then there are months when they, they have no access to fresh grape juice at all. The way of preserving grape juice and making it stay grape juice was not discovered until the 1800s. And so prior to the 1800s, when people observed the Lord's Supper, they, they used wine as the element in the Lord's Supper. And that would be my preference. It would be preference that we used wine in the Lord's Supper. I think that's in keeping with what, what the Bible says. But I don't think that it's the sort of thing that we should have a big fuss about. Uh, so I think that uh, the, the significance is not exactly the element, although I would protest if we tried to use Gatorade you know, or, or Kool-Aid or something like that. I do think that it needs to be the fruit of the vine. And uh, since we have access to the fruit of the vine that is not fermented, then it does not offend my conscience at all, although my preference would be that all churches used wine, as was done inevitably in the Lord's Supper through, the 18, through, through most of the 1800s. But this wine represents something that is sad, right? The blood of Jesus being shed. Sometimes when the, the meal is being served and I'm just up here thinking about things, I, uh, I imagine the crucifixion and imagine uh, blood dripping off of a body. I try not to look at the face because I, I, I don't think it's helpful in my faith to uh, imagine the face of the Lord. But I just think about the blood coming down and dripping and hitting on the ground. It's a very sad thing. But it's not only sad. It is sober, but it is also joyful. It's also joyful because this love that Jesus tasted as blood we taste as something that is sweet. The sweetness of wine or the sweetness of grape juice. And uh, George, George Herbert concludes one of his poems. I actually quoted part of it on Wednesday night. Men have traveled uh, the earth exploring all of these various things, but there are two things that they have not sufficiently explored. One is sin and the other is love. If you want to know what sin is, then go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there you'll see a man so wrung with pains that his body and his clothing are saturated with, with blood. Sin is that uh, cruel pain that hide, that seeks for his food through every vein of this anguished man. Now, if you want to know what love is, then look at the cross and see where there was a spear that set something flowing from the side of Jesus. It was water mixed with blood. And, uh, and look at that. And that will teach you what love is. And he says, love is that liquor so divine, which my God feels as love, but I taste as wine. So you see there's happiness in it too. There's joy in it. So that this, this cup that we are about to partake as the body of Christ represents the agony in the blood of the Lord Jesus, and that fills us with, with sobriety. But it also represents 
the fact that he did it to cleanse us from our sins. And Jesus might have appointed vinegar to be the element for the Lord's Supper. And then it just would have been strictly a reminder of uh, the bitterness of it. But instead, he appointed that the fruit of the vine should be the element used in the Lord's Supper. Something that is pleasant. Something that is associated with joy. And so, as we take the Lord's Supper this, uh, this morning, let's, let's hold those two things together. Let's remember with a, a solemn joy the death of Jesus on the cross. And let's remember with a joyful solemnity the fact that we have been cleansed by what this meal represents, the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, those who are going to help serve the meal, please come. And uh, while they are coming, let me remind you that this is a meal for people who are already Christians. So this is, not, this is not going to help you to become a Christian. Watching it and thinking about it may. But the only way that you can be saved is if you receive the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Repent of your sin and receive Jesus. Follow him in baptism. And then come and welcome to the Lord's table. But until you've been saved and baptized, then I urge you, don't hurt yourself. It's not going to do you any good and it may do you harm. And so don't take the Lord's Supper if you don't belong to the Lord and are not following him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this sign that Jesus gave, which shows us uh, that he was not only a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but that he also was a man of joy. And we pray that you'll help us to partake of sadness and repentance when it's time for sadness and repentance. But help us to drink the wine of joy when it's time for rejoicing. And we pray that all of our sour, sweet days we will lament and love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we'll hold it in your hand and we'll take it all together.